Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Scopophilia. We are the millennial movie movement, and I, of course, am your host, Becky Teller, back at it with more film content just for you as we reach the final stretch of season four, and we are on episode 12 out of 13. I honestly cannot believe that we are here already. This season has gone by in a flash. I feel like all the seasons do. Uh, It gets to a certain point, and then all of a sudden, I'm hitting the ground running uh, to catch up because the season is almost done, and I don't know what to do with myself. But regardless of all that, um, I'm having a great time, and this episode is no different because not only are we talking about a critically acclaimed film, it's on the top of everyone's list. It feels like Um, we're also talking with an incredibly talented and brilliant uh, female filmmaker, uh, Miss Laura Russo. He's on the show today, which is very exciting. It was our first time meeting and obviously just from the interview, I think you can tell. Obviously, it was a delightful time um, and very much looking forward to having her back. Uh, And on top of that, we're talking about Mulholland Drive, which of course is a David Lynch film, um, better known, uh, I think, uh, in the mainstream media for, of course, his show Twin Peaks, um, cult classic TV show, uh, brilliant director, And we just had a really good time. I mean, this is a really deep film. And by the time we were done and like just kind of chatting post show, uh, we were, you know, kind of just talking to each other and going, I don't know if we actually got through half of what is in this movie. And so uh, we did the best that we could. I will say that. And uh, it was a great time. I honestly probably could have talked to her for four hours trying to dissect what this film is. Um, But as a forewarning to all who have not seen the film, this is definitely one that you want to watch before listening to the episode. Um, Just so you know that what we're talking about, because there is so much going on in this film at all times. And I think you might get lost (laughs) a little bit in this interview if you haven't seen the film. Um, Normally... I like to be a little bit loose. Uh, You know, you're welcome to listen to the interview, um, but definitely expect some strangeness for sure. Um, Or you can ignore my warning and just go for it. You know, whatever floats your boat. Obviously, I'm here to keep the conversation going. Uh, So, you know, I've warned you. Uh, So if you get confused, I guess you just got to watch the film. So without further ado... My interview with Laura Russo about one of her favorite films, Mulholland Drive. Enjoy! Scopophilia, it's the newest thing to hit the market. Defined as deriving aesthetic pleasure from looking at something, it's the new craze sweeping the nation. Taken in large doses, side effects can include an addictive nature to have more film content. If this increase occurs, consult no one and keep listening. Scopophiliacs, and welcome back to another episode of Scopophilia, the podcast. And I'm already having a good time. We have already been chatting with each other, but we have the lovely and talented Laura Russo 
on the show today. And I'm so excited. We are, we are talking about a cool film. We are talking with a cool lady. So all good things here. And so first and foremost, hi, how are you? How are you doing? Uh, I hear the weather is lovely over there, as you told me. (laughs) Absolutely, Becky. Great to be here. Thank you. And Well, lovely in the sense of that it's very hot, but I love that. That's why I live here. That's why I'm in Los Angeles. And yes, but please send rain. Right. (laughs) If you can. On the East Coast for us. I'll be doing my rain dance over here for you. Rain dance, please. (laughs) And so we got connected via Robert, who is always very helpful with the show. And um, we got connected. It's been lovely speaking with you already. And so first and foremost, for people who maybe don't recognize your name, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, for yes, people that don't know, really, they exist. (laughs) Okay. For those people. Um, only them though. Yes. Only them. Those, yeah. <laughs> you can count them on one hand probably, but okay. <laughs> I'm a filmmaker and I write, direct, and produce. Uh, I currently have a feature uh, film that, you know, I'm really excited about. It's called Fear Frequency and it was shot um, completely during the pandemic at the height of the lockdown. And, you know, I had been working on a film right before COVID hit. And it it was a sci-fi thriller called uh, Deadstream. And consequently, when everything shut down, we had to put that project on hold. And, um, you know, since that one, I was in the midst of raising the financing. And, you know, it's a a much larger project, you know, in scale than Mm -hmm. with your frequency. But um, so, you know, we decided we, <laughs> Tim Huddleston, a producing partner, writing partner of mine, you know, super talented, great writer, along with, uh, Jillian Davis, and she's a fantastic actress, um, producer. Um, you know, we decided to, we had to pivot and do something else under the circumstances. And so, um, we decided to channel all of our pandemic uh, <laughs> of anxiety, right? Right, um, which a lot of people had to do into something, and a lot of people did into something creative, you know, at the time. And yeah, and if it wasn't, what was the big thing everybody was doing was baking uh, sourdough bread. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> um, we decided as filmmakers, you know, it had to be a film. So, uh, you know, we were able to get, which is really fortunate, like the silver, small silver lining with uh, the pandemic was all the crew and talented people that were available because there was nothing, there was no work. The industry was shut down. Right. And, you know, so we pulled together this uh, talented crew and, um, yeah, we were, we were just, um, you know, really fortunate that way and that they were available. So, uh, we got, we shot our footage, um, you know, that we needed with the DP, uh, in, in a really quick amount of time. We were able to get that shot in six days with only one pickup day. Oh, wow. And yeah, pretty, <laughs> <it was> pretty <laughs> intense, long days. 
Um, but yeah. And the, and he was, you know, we used a great camera. We had this amazing camera, uh, the Sony Venice. Um, it's yeah, it, it was really fortunate. Um, so everything looks really great. Uh, and I also shot the rest of the footage with an iPhone camera through and through a laptop camera. And oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So our lead character uses her phone for uh, video diaries, which, you know, she uh, it allowed us with her character to access her thoughts, her emotional state. Um, and then we use the laptop footage of course, for the video blogs. And, you know, her character is a conspiracy video blogger. And this, you know, this, as, as time went on, these video blogs, they become more unhinged and erratic as the film progresses. So, mm. right? <laughs> so, yeah. The film, <laughs> so, yeah, so the film is about, okay, so the film is about this online conspiracy blogger who, uh-huh. who after a, Global internet uh, blackout strikes, the lines between sort of reality and delusion start to blur. And, you know, as she becomes, as she has become like this, she feels she's become this target of this powerful secret society that's like bent on world domination. And she's who she has spent much of her time uh, trying to warn all of her followers about in these blogs. And now that you know the internet is down and she's cut off from her last connection to what is to what is like her has been her only sports system for uh, you know uh, quite a long time uh, uh-huh. after her divorce and uh, you know driving her last few friends away she just becomes more and more isolated and paranoid um, mm. And, uh, you know, the main theme, what we wanted to address uh, with this movie, um, you know, are the dangers of conspiracy theories and, and you know, the people that promote them and, and how, you know, we're consistently being bombarded with them more and more, uh, you know, and especially during the pandemic, but, it, but it's oh, still, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. QAnon and all that uh, going on but it's still it's prevalent and uh you know with that um you know what they can do to the mind and it's basically like a cult mentality you know and, yeah uh dangerous dangerous stuff so it's a our film you know it's a dark tension-filled film like Mulholland Drive which I can't wait to get to yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and it also dives into this, this psyche, just like that film of a very troubled woman, uh, you know, and we're just really proud of it. Uh, and, and I'm proud of everyone who helped create it. I'm really excited for people to check it out. Um, it's available on several platforms right now. It's on Amazon Prime Video, YouTube, Google Play. And uh, yeah, I'm just ex- really excited to have it out there. Amazing. Well, I'm excited to watch it. I'm, of course, going to be watching it tonight after our interview. And I know when we were, you know, first discussing what film we wanted to watch, you had said that Mulholland Drive was a big um, inspiration for the film. And so, first and foremost, Mulholland Drive, big okay. movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> big <is>. movie. <laughs> and so why Mulholland Drive as opposed to a, di- a different film? You know, yeah, it's, there's so many things about this movie um, and reasons actually for me to have chosen it. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it definitely, I guess probably the top of the list is that how it has influenced uh, my latest project, Fear Frequency, the way it, um, you know, it's, uh, we have this mysterious box in our film and that's sort of a nod to Mulholland Drive and, and how David Lynch uses that in his film. Um, Also how, has so many different interpretations and you know from watching it there's oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) right yeah (laughs) how you can watch it and you know and you might come up with a a whole reason why all these events took place and then I'll watch it and I'll have seen it in a whole different way so I love that and I love that ambiguity and the way um, he's able to craft you know a storyline like that and that's that's definitely what we wanted to do, Tim and I, you know, with uh, Fear Frequency. Um, and so, yeah, that's a probably one of my main reasons for wanting to choose this film, but also how I can relate to it. It's all, you know, it's about the film industry and Hollywood. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And how it, it also, Mulholland Drive is based on one of David Lynch is his, you know, favorite films of all time was Sunset Boulevard. Right. Mm -hmm. So he does take a lot of, a lot from Sunset Boulevard and applies it to Mulholland Drive, which also is one of my all time favorite films as well. Um, That's a great one. So there's just great, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, so there's there's quite a, a few things that I can I can say uh, you know made me choose it for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely uh, definitely like the and it also has that new wave sort of uh, French style of filmmaking. Um, yeah, right. Uh, that definitely is part of Fear Frequency too. So. Uh, that amb- ambiguity, uh, you know, and you, you don't know exactly. Uh, everything isn't in a linear sort, told in a linear way in Lynch's films, which right, which you know, I definitely uh, definitely appeals to me as a filmmaker. Um, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, I love that. <laughs> good. Yeah, and film noir. I know. I know you did say that that's something you um, one of the, your favorite genres of film. Styles of filmmaking or styles of film. Oh, for sure. That like classic Hollywood vibe film, like black and white film noir. There's just something so beautiful about it (laughs) and aesthetically pleasing to me, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, the moody, you know, the moodiness it creates. Yeah, I I hope you enjoyed watching it. And you said you hadn't seen it before, right? Yes, it was my first time watching it. And I I had seen Blue Velvet and I had seen a very large chunk of Twin Peaks. So I kind of knew what I was getting involved in, but also not (laughs) at all. (laughs) Also not at all. Also not at all. In in true David Lynch fashion, I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah. It definitely not predictable. It was no. not a movie where you come watch and say, I know exactly how this is going to end. Right. 
And so for those like myself who have not seen Mulholland Drive, can you give kind of, this is a big question. Can you give kind of like a short synopsis as to what you would say the the storyline is? Sure. Well, I can give a really short one and that would be, it's a Hollywood dream turned nightmare. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> absolutely. For no. uh, Naomi Watts, you know, her character, it definitely is, um, is that, you know, and yeah. <clears throat> you know, it, it's for me, it's like a chilling look um, into the psyche of this sort of, you know, deeply disturbed and suicidal woman, mm-hmm. uh, Diane, Diane Selwyn. And, uh, you know, she's guilt stricken over her involvement in this murder of her strange lover. Uh, and, you know, the, the entire movie, it takes place in her apartment over a mm-hmm. few hours. And, uh, you know, and as, as she contemplates committing suicide, basically. Um, yeah. But she does, and she does commit suicide, you know, in the end. But right. spoiler alert, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> and <laughs> it's dark, I would say, right? Oh, my read? gosh. It's, it's a pretty dark film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and, and just insane as well. Like, and like you were saying, it's not something that you can predict. Although I found myself the entire time trying to do that of like, I think I know how this is going to go, but I'm interested to see where it's going to go. And then it turned left and I went, Oh, where are we now? Where Where are are we now? (laughs) (laughs) And did you ever figure out where you were? No. Exactly. Oh my gosh. I, I, when I was done, I think it was like 1130 at night by the time I finished up everything. And I was like exhausted and confused and enamored because it's so beautiful Right. and was like Googling afterwards, like, what is the meaning of this film? What happened? (laughs) What did I just watch? What did I just watch? Please explain. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, and in a way, you know, that's how Lynch, you know, um, designs and creates, you know, the stories that he tells is to be, he says, is to be felt um, mm-hmm. more than tried to explain them. They're just meant to be experienced. So, yes. And it is I, an experience for sure. It's an experience. <laughs> <laughs> But what's really interesting, I think, first of all, is that originally it was um, to be made for a pilot, you know, right. for ABC and a, and a spinoff of Twin Peaks. And yeah, um, so it, it's it, it definitely starting from that, you know, place where it came from mm-hmm. is kind of what how um David Lynch decided to finish the film and everything because, you know, for him, that was, that was a hard pill to swallow. And I think for any director or, you know, that is excited and does a project and then you get the the plug pulled on you, you know? Right. Oh, for sure. Um, That's really tough for anybody. And it took him another year and a half actually to 
get the funding and get back into production. Um, after having the actors and everybody, and I, I watched an interview with Naomi Watts talking about it, and she was saying how, you know, that was the longest year and a half of her life because they right. had, you know, had no idea it was, if anything was going to come of it or how long it would take. And, and she had been struggling, you know, before that and actually contemplated going back home to Australia and just leaving Hollywood. Um, yeah. And, yeah. So it, be, it really launched her and, and Laura pairing actually too. Um, right. You know. Oh my gosh. So, so yeah, um, just the fact that he had to finish this as, uh, you know, with what he had and then uh, taking the time is just amazing that he did to actually yeah. get back to it, you know? Oh yeah. And, and he was able to uh, get the money and the funding from producers uh, over in France to create right. the film. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's, you know, the road he had to go down. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know. <laughs> right? Well, and it's, it's interesting to think that like, it was supposed to be a TV show. And when I think back on viewing it after learning that, mm-hmm. you can kind of see like a little bit of an episodic structure to the film in some mm-hmm. regards, but also a very cinematic one piece structure as well, which is a very delicate balance that of course only he could think to do. <laughs> exactly. And he's always shoots everything with a cinematic quality. He does talk about that. Oh my Even gosh. His TV work. Um, you know, Twin Peaks was absolutely stunning. Stunning, right? Visually. Yeah. I mean he's such a visual uh you know visionary too uh, right filmmaker. And his style, you know, the surreal style and dreamlike quality and all of that lends itself absolutely to that style of work. So, yeah, um, it's just just the fact that he was able to then, you know, come up with like something in the third act that completely would tie all of this together is genius. And, oh, my gosh. Uh, right. It's just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's it's a feat. It's he definitely, yeah, uh, had yeah. his a challenge with this one, and he definitely met the challenge. I would say, absolutely. Well, and with so let book. me ask you: with okay. there's so much in this film, I feel like to unpack, right? But let's let's start off, maybe easy, maybe not, and and ask you: Do you have like a favorite part or moment in this film? Well, I, you know, there's definitely uh, moments, um, but probably one of my favorite scenes, I would say, is the scene where we have Justin Thoreau's character, Adam, uh, in the meeting with meeting mm-hmm. with the mafioso types and there's, you know, and, and his agent manager there with him. And they're trying to explain to him that he has to cast this girl. Right. He has to cast this actress. Oh, yeah. She's very pretty. Mm. 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 May I offer you gentlemen anything? Espresso. Nothing. Uh, what's the photo for? One espresso. 
No, that's it. I think you're going to enjoy your espresso this time. I've done quite a bit of research, knowing how hard you are to please. This one comes highly recommended. What's the photo for? It's a recommendation. A recommendation to you, Adam. It's not a recommendation. This is the girl. What girl? For what? What is this, Ray? Uh, we'd be happy to put her on the list for considerations. Uh, you'd be pleased to know that there's quite a bit of interest in this role. Interest? Hmm. There's six of the top actresses that want this thing. This is the girl. Ray, take care of this. Hold on. Hold on, Adam. Hold on? There's no way! There's no way! Yeah. I'm sorry. That was a highly recommended... That is considered one of the finest espressos in the Wait, world, What sir. is going on here? There is no way that girl is in my mouth. This is the girl. Hey, that girl is not in my film. It's no longer your film. I just love the tension of that scene um, and <laughs> the absurdity of Hollywood and how, you know, how Lynch takes it up to, uh, you know, a whole other level <laughs> with the coffee and the espresso. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my he, God. And you can tell his disdain at that point. It's like such a dig to, to network and studio types and the whole yeah. industry and how they behave, you know, um, it's, it's just great. I think and I, and I love, I just love when, when he's like, so irate and he's so infuriated Adam yeah. director. And he's like, he's like, that girl's not in my film. That girl's not in my film. And he's just losing <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> and the mafia, the mafia guy's like, it's no longer your film. <laughs> so, right. Oh, man. And he just, and he, you know, and he storms out and goes downstairs and smashes, grabs out of his Porsche, <laughs> grabs his golf club and smashes the limo, you know, that right. these guys showed up in, smashes their car. I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it's just perfect. <laughs> no, for sure. Scene. <laughs> such a great scene and the dark humor you know is just throughout the whole piece I mean oh yeah and, and uh, you know I love and I feel like that's what we wanted to do um in you know my film uh with with fair frequency we try we speckle in there you know the absurdity of some things and the dark humor and um yeah it's <laughs> it's and then he goes back to his house and then he you know he's having a bad day for sure this director yeah <laughs> and his wife is in bed <laughs> cheating on him with like the pool boy or something you right. know <laughs> who's played by billy ray cyrus who's billy just there <laughs> right i that scene is so crazy already and like absurd and then on top of it he comes home and his wife is mad at him it's that, like what are you doing here right like how dare you right kicks him out like throws him right. out the door like 
it's like, I just. Right. <laughs> like, and like the pink, supposed the pink to, paint was oh, hilarious. The pink paint. So good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> And then it's like all over his, it's such a Lynchian thing because he's so, he's, you know, he comes from being a painter and an artist. And I'm like, of course you would grab paint. Of right. course. <laughs> and then he's walking around with his black jacket for the next, you know, day and a half with the paint, <laughs> the pink paint yeah. handprints all over it. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know. It's so it good. So good. And it's so funny. I was watching an interview with, um, Peter Demings, his DP, and mm-hmm. uh, he was saying how they filmed that scene with the paint and the, uh, the owners of the house were so concerned and telling them, no, they didn't want them to, uh, you know, use any, like, just because that could cause, like, permanent damage to the kitchen right. and the counters. And he said, we guaranteed <laughs> them, you know, we were going to cover everything with the thin film of plastic like all the counters the floor everything's going to be protected and he's he he goes but in the end i don't think we ended up with uh, not damaging anything oh <laughs> i don't gosh. think we got we got a little bit of trouble there <laughs> oh my god! i'm sure you could not talk david out of using that You're oh not- i'm sure <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, uh, I just feel like, oh, and then it cuts to, too, where you have our, I love the scene, too, with um, Mr. Mr. Roke, the, uh, you know, student, the mysterious, uh, omnipresent yeah. kind of, you know, studio head that's operating from the shadows, the shadowy place. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he just says, you know, shut it down. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great. And it's like, for me, you know, David Lynch is just venting all of his frustration with the studio shutting down this pilot. And it's so great how he decided I'm throwing this in and I'm going to, yeah. you know, make a point yeah. of, of letting everybody know, you know, what I think of these people and, and how they do business and how they, you know, he hates anybody that is, is going to be sort of uh, uh, stifling his creativity. And, you know, because he said he got pages and pages of notes from the studio people about, about Mulholland Drive. Right. Know, and, and how, how it was just ridiculous what they, you know, were picking on. And like the main, like Adam smoked, the character with Adam, the director is smoking too much. We don't want to project cigarettes and smoking. And, right. And you can't tell David Lynch that because he's a right. smoker. <laughs> he's, he's like, I'm not taking that out, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> like that, that just hits, hits a nerve for him, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting because you kind of have like, I would say probably, so you have like your overarching like cyclical story, which is like Diane and her apartment. But then you also have like this very, very tough commentary on Hollywood and how they Mm -hmm. run their business. And then you also have this other like third story of this woman with amnesia and a a brand new, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed actress who's come to Hollywood to like make 
her stardom break. And they somehow all form together into like a strangely cohesive piece, which it feels like those things shouldn't technically go together, but they do. Exactly. Does that make sense? Like- exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you know the 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 they I guess a big interpretation one of the main one interpretations of this film is uh, that the first two acts are are the dream mm-hmm. you know and the third act is reality right is her is Diane's reality and Betty is the dream is Diane's sort of idealistic you know projection of how how she would have loved it for her experience to have gone arriving in yeah. LA. And, uh, right. and, and then the third act is how it really went for her. Right. You know, and the dark side, how she did end up, unfortunately going to the dark side, you know? Yeah. But it, it also, yeah. it, it's funny how, how there are so many um, also inferences to the fact that she probably was, I don't know if you picked up on this at all, but that she was probably abused as a child, um, you know, sexually abused. And I don't know if, if you felt like that came through anywhere for you, but um, yeah, that's. Yeah. I mean, I, I did read about that and I was like, Oh, that is an interesting layer that I had not thought about. Um, Okay. Because one of the things that I had thought, like, in reflecting back on it was this idea that you have um, Rita, who, in reality, kind of has the impression of, like, oh, she's sleeping for parts or she's sleeping with everybody. And then you have Betty coming in and has this audition with this older man, which like he obviously wants it to be sexual and she just kind of leans into it and does a phenomenal job in the scene. Like, let's, let's be honest. Oh, but she blows them away. I mean, blows yeah. them all away. Yeah. Um, but there is this kind of, I don't know, subtle nod without like, before we know the context of like, she'll do whatever it takes to get exactly. the role. So yeah, it is interesting. I I had not thought of this idea that like she might have been abused as a child with an older man or some right. something that was not something that I picked up on but was very interesting to think about after. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it yeah, it definitely does make sense as backstory to why she, you know why she is the way she is and right. um tormented um, and having so many issues, you know, in her personal life and in her work life, um, right. that she has all that unresolved stuff and, and pain, um, you know? Yeah. And also the, the way he alludes to it with the dialogue that they're doing in that scene. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it definitely, yeah. I, and, and just the fact that, um, you know, she has the relationship that she has, uh, you know, with Camilla and, um, it's it just also, which was interesting is some interpretations say that she was actually, um, because of the red lamp that's in all of the shots that that's inferring she was 
actually uh, had to succumb to prostitution and oh, working to, yeah. you know, that she had just really hit rock bottom, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, so it, it's, it's funny how the third act definitely brings out the real situation of Diane. And then the first two acts are the dream of what it could have been for her, for her character. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and, and then I had also read that like, you know, there's certain aspects in the first two acts, like, um, like Dan and the dream and the diner that like, when I was first watching it, I was like, okay, when does he come back in the film? <laughs> like, exactly. he, there has to be more to his story arc, but there's not, he pops up at the end and it's because he's standing at the counter. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things I read was that like the monster that he sees in his dream and in the film is like Diane's guilt about everything. And like, I don't know, like the ugliness inside of her or something like that, which I think makes sense reflecting. But at the time I'm like, what is this? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> that is, you know, one of the things I think, you know, possibly because of the pilot, you had a few characters that you were, you know, setting up for a long um, amount of, you know, there's going to be what, 13, 14 episodes, you know, that you're going to need to do. And um, you would reintroduce them and, and, and their kind of characters and and their story arcs would evolve over time. Um, So I'm sure there, there was a way that he needed to just kind of, with some of these characters, you know, wrap right. them up in a quicker way with this film. <laughs> and he probably <laughs> would have fleshed them out more as, as the series went on, you know. But it still, I think, in the end, served its original purpose, which was, like you're saying, to be the shadowy dark side and to also, um, I think, foreshadow you know, what's coming. I would agree. Well, and it's interesting because even if you, you know, with the thought process that like, maybe this was supposed to be something that was fleshed out more, even without the fleshing out, it has just that right level of absurdity for a David Lynch film. (laughs) He gets away with it. No problem. (laughs) No question. (laughs) Well, it's like the older couple. Um, yes. You know, there's so many different theories on who and why they're there exactly as well. Um, yeah. And, you know, you see them right in the beginning with the, with actually the opening, the jitterbug contest, you see them as, as, uh, you know, fading in the overlay yeah. of, of, of them with her. Um, so and then getting off the plane, of course, that, you know, she says it was nice. It was nice uh, sharing the flight with you and spending time with you. And and he's mm-hmm. like, nice meeting you. Good luck. So, you know, they're not family. Right. You know, and, and they, a lot of uh, interpretations are that they were the judges of the jitterbug contest, possibly. And that's why, you know, they were wishing her well. And oh, um, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Right. Also, the way they come back in the end, though, as the demon in a demon-like way. Yeah. (laughs) 
is, oh my gosh. <laughs> right. And they are the ones, the last people you see before she shoots herself that drive yeah. her to that, to actually drive her to that. So, you know, a lot of interpretations are that that is, you know, the, the clean, original, like very pure um, a dream version of Hollywood for her in the beginning, the pure, mm-hmm. happy, sunny vision of Hollywood for her. And mm-hmm. then in the end, they come back, you know, after all that she's been through and where she has ended up as the final just you know, subconscious sort of manifestation of the ugliness of it all. And it, they then turn into like demons, you know? Yeah. And um, push her then finally, that's like the last straw in her mind of the disappointment of it all. Um, yeah. And just grappling with everything, you know, the death of being responsible for the death of, of Camilla. Um, it's just everything, you know, at that point, yeah. it's just too much for her. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, are we even going to try to talk about the nightclub scene? Oh my, I was <laughs> just even... thinking about that. <laughs> I mean, Silencio, it came up and I was so enthralled by it. In, the, mm-hmm. in this concept that they have created a whole show that they say up front, everything is recorded. Right. And then they bring people out as though they're right. performing live. And you shouldn't be surprised that it's a recording, <laughs> but you are. But you are. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is real is kind of the subtext there. Right. None exactly. of this is real. There is no band. He says there is no band. Right. Um, <laughs> Nothing is real. It's like the smoke and mirrors of all of this industry, like a lot right. of it anyway. And the, you know, the underbelly that is hidden and kept hidden for the most part, um, you know? Yeah. So, and, and the fact I, I, I know, you know, how the final singer with her incredible voice. Um, oh, yeah. The so Spanish version. Beautiful. Crying. Uh-huh singing and and how her makeup is is just a mess and she's dressed like a prostitute basically yeah just all the symbolism there there's just so much symbolism oh my gosh (laughs) um that voice so beautiful right haunting haunting that's a lot of what yeah he did with this film too it's just haunting all the way through yes you know Oh, a hundred percent. Right? That yeah. he's able to just and the music and the score. Like he spends so much time on that on sound and music. Yeah. And that's a huge influence for me too, because that is a main character in any film. As a filmmaker, it's such a powerful tool. And Lynch talks about that all the time, how you know, sound and, and it just it, he he said that he talks about a lot how he sits with his composer and he just starts talking and he'll start playing things on the piano and Lynch will be like no no and just keep talking that's not it and then you know until they finally starts playing like some kind of a melody that fits you know Mm. to what he is talking uh, about and with the film and 
um, you know, that's how he kind of comes up with it, with the score. And it's just perfect, all of it. Oh, 100%. One of the things that I was thinking of watching this, and I wrote it in my notes, was like, Mm -hmm. there is so much of this film that's so quiet. And then when the music comes, and maybe it's just the way my, my TV is or something, but it was like the music would start or like, like specifically like the the scene in the diner when they round the corner and then there's this, you know, demon. It like, it got so loud and I was so startled. (laughs) (laughs) But like, that's part of it. It's like, it doesn't necessarily, I think a lot of films put music in to lead the audience somewhere. And it never feels like it's leading us or, or, or making us feel a certain way, but it's used as a tool to kind of propel us forward. And I think that's, there's a very subtle difference between those things. And Lynch does a really good job of making it that the music isn't carrying the story. It's like assisting the story, if that makes sense. Definitely. Yes. And sound effects and Uh, all of the, you know, yes, he creates a a world with that. Um, And it, it's funny how, if you bring in another style and another, you know, a technique of that, it would be a whole different movie. Yeah. Change it completely. Um, and, and yeah, it, it, that scene has so many different, you know, in, in the club, it just has so much information and symbolism there. And it is the moment when, uh, she realizes uh, where where Diane realizes that this is has been an illusion, and all of yeah. it she, that you know that information is finally just you know undeniable to her at that point. Right. And from that point on is when we're you know we're brought back into the reality for her uh, with right. the box and opening of the box is sort of the portal back to reality. Oh, for sure. After that scene. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) no, absolutely. Um, Yes. And it's funny how after opening the box, you you have Camilla open the box and she states, you know, she starts, well, she first starts looking for, she's, she's uh, calling out for Diane and we don't see her again after that. So well, Betty at that point. And right. It was Betty. But we don't see her. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And and yeah, it's just it's it's just I think a statement to how he's able to um you know write and his writing uh ability to uh figure out a way to sort of communicate that is is pretty uh, pretty, uh, you know, admirable and uh, creative that he comes up with these things, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's so subtle when you like go back and, and rewatch it and like really think about it of like, mm-hmm. he didn't necessarily need to bring the aunt back, but bringing her back after mm-hmm. they both open the box kind of also suggests that we're back in reality because all of their things are now gone. Are and- gone she's back in her own apartment 
that we assume is, is hers. (laughs) I mean, right. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a very subtle nod that like, oh, we've shifted back to reality now. The reality that you didn't realize was there. (laughs) Well, and yeah, did none of exactly none of that ever happen, of course. And right. Right. But also the fact that the reality is, and Diane explains this at the dinner party at Adam's house in the, you know, one of the mm-hmm. final scenes of the film, that big dinner party, um, she reveals that she inherited money from her aunt and that's how she got yeah. to LA and that her aunt is actually passed. When yeah. in the beginning of the film, she's, you know, <laughs> yeah. saying that she's in Canada <laughs> shooting a movie. Yeah. And that was her whole dream ideal, you know, that that mm-hmm. that was still the situation. And she actually wasn't, you know, she wasn't dead. But right. But it's interesting, too, how I I feel, um, you know, in a dream and, and they I've also heard. Uh, sort of scenarios that, you know, he also, David Lynch loved the Wizard of Oz. And you know, in the Wizard of Oz in the dream, how different characters of Dorothy's waking life, real life, are playing different roles in her dream, are different than they actually are in real life. So that's kind of what he did as well with everybody assuming different identities and playing different roles in uh, Diane's dream world, you know, her Hollywood dream world. (laughs) of what her Hollywood dream should have been. Right. um, So that explains a bit there, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I I mean, it's in, it's, it's one of those films where you have to be actively watching the whole time, which I can appreciate as somebody who loves film of like, ah, he wants me to pay attention and I'm going to figure out why. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting also to think about, you know, all the different references that he's using to like classic Hollywood, Wizard of Oz. Um, Oh my gosh, I just had a third one. Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard, yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And Persona, um, Bergman's film Persona. uh, That is also an influence here because he does speak about how Mulholland Drive is about identity. Um, mm, mm-hmm. you know, and that she is assuming other identities and there's a whole other train of thought that she actually is everybody, that she is actually Camilla as well. And that's oh. just another side of her personality. Interesting. Right. <laughs> Cause if you oh, man. think about the film that way, it actually works as well. You can go through the whole plot line that, that it's a movie within a movie with, within a dream. and that you know it's the hollywood dream movie within a movie so if you want you can go through the whole film and apply that that she does you know it's just a fractured part of herself her subconscious you know in these different roles and that's why when when camilla puts on the blonde wig you know they look they, the same. They look the same. They go to the club looking the same. And then there's that moment, too, when they run out of the apartment after finding Diane's body, you know, when she's in bed, dead, right. rotting. Yeah. That there's the uh, 
you know, uh, double vision and uh, camera trick. We see yeah. them. We see them where that's kind of, uh, you know, saying that that it's a fractured personality. It's several multiple personality kind of feel to it in that shot. Uh, kind of alluding to that being the case, you know. Oh man. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why I thought I'm like, what? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's too you much. I, mean, I can't keep up. <laughs> my brain hurts. Stop. <laughs> oh man. Oh, it's just, there's, there's just so much. And like every time you think you get close to kind of peeling back a layer and understanding right. I feel like there's eight more layers there's eight the more bat. to go but no it can mean this oh wait you can completely right. throw it away and, and it you know it totally means like uh, something oh, for sure that, you know it's just yeah oh man uh, which I mean <laughs> I guess I guess that really kind of solidifies like this film is like a piece of art in that regard and art. I think Lynch really does that with all of his media that he does is like he's making art rather than making like quote unquote film like right yeah like 100%. entertainment yeah. 100% and and he also loves mysteries and he's mm. like I write mysteries and I want people that's why he gave clues like on one you know his DVD with the film there's 10 clues that he gives about figuring out Mulholland Drive um that's what he wants to create like an experience that you can, everyone is a detective, he says, and everybody mm. likes to try to, you know, um, figure out like what's, you know, and that's the thing, like I said, with his movie, you don't ever say, I got this, I have this figured out, which he's done on purpose because then right. what's the fun in that? Right. <laughs> that's what he said. Like, <laughs> and that's why he doesn't ever like to explain any of his uh, plots. You know, he's, even right. more in the actors, he said, when we go to Cannes, he goes, when we're there, you're going to be asked, uh, all of you are going to be asked to please explain the movie. Like, what is this about? And he goes, don't do it. <laughs> don't give, I don't want anybody, you know, to have any interpretation other than, than what they come up with themselves at the end. He wants everybody to have their own interpretation and, and be able to talk about it. Um, and, and want to see it again over and over, you know? Yeah. Uh, like that's the brilliance of it. Oh my gosh. Right? <laughs> the genius of it. I mean, of, I know, uh, I know. It's, I mean, I think it's like, it's, I think it's 21 years old this year. Yeah. And exactly. we're still talking about it in a critical sense. Like, <laughs> I know it's yeah. A, a movie that, um, you know, it's like, it's going to live forever because of that. I feel. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, and I mean, go yeah. ahead. No, no, go. <laughs> I mean, it's just <laughs> so much. Yeah, I know. Right. Well, and also like I was, you know, reading some of the trivia facts on mm -hmm. like IMDB just to see what was there. And mm -hmm. it's like, it's in the like top 100, you know, thousand and one movies to see before you die. It has a high rating. Oh, wow. Like everywhere online, it's like a French 
uh, top film of all time for one of those, um, you know, film publications, which is escaping my mind because it's French. Exactly. And yeah, like, so it's, it's, it's on the top of everybody's list. It sounds uh-huh. like. I know. And, I yeah. Was, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think it, it, um, was, I, one of the, um, yeah, stats I read that it, it's considered one of the greatest films of the 21st century. Um, mm. You know, it was voted greatest film of the 21st century. So, yeah, it's it's a high bar. (laughs) Yeah. For sure. (laughs) I mean, I mean, and then there's so many, like you said, with Dan, the character of Dan was so interesting, but the character of the cowboy was so interesting as well. Yeah. Howdy. Howdy to you. Beautiful evening. Yeah. Do you want to thank you for coming all the way up here to see me from that nice hotel downtown? No problem. It's on your mind. Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. (laughs) Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. Man's attitude man's attitude goes some ways the way his life will be is that something you might agree with sure now did you answer because that's what you thought i wanted to hear or did you think about what i said and answer because you truly believe that to be right i agree with what you said truly what i say that a man's attitude determines to a large extent how his life will be. So since you agree, you must be a person who does not care about the good life. How's that? Well, stop for a little second and think about it. Can you do that for me? Um, (laughs) That he... And that's a friend of his. The actor is a producer friend of his. He's not even an actor, really. Oh. <laughs> and uh, uh, Justin Thoreau is telling a story, you know, the scene he has with him at, at night when he meets mm-hmm. him and at the, at the corral uh, at the top of, <laughs> was it the top of Beachwood Canyon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And that conversation, you know, that they have when they meet, he said he had to put, he had to hold cue cards. Oh, yeah. Take to his body. (laughs) (laughs) Because he didn't, yeah, he couldn't remember his lines and he wasn't used to memorizing lines. So he had to read them. And it just worked, actually worked out well because it gave him that sort of monotone, much more monotone and creepy feel than if yeah. he had memorized and they were just, you know, he was just kind of reciting them, you know, as, as, you know, words that, you know, were not, um, you know, something that he had to just try to figure out and read on the spot. It just came across so perfectly It's so funny how that worked out. And even Lynch said, you know, it totally worked out 
it's just, yeah, he was laughing yeah. about how, <laughs> how it all worked out. And it, when yeah. it seems like a lot of filmmakers would be like, ah, well, you have to recast and shut down. Right. The like, you know, shut it down for the day. Not Lynch. But, no, <laughs> let him read it. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was great. And I mean, I did also want to kind of touch on the relationship between like Betty and Rita, because you kind of have this strange, like serendipity between them. I feel like of, it's almost like Betty just kind of stumbles on Rita or Rita kind of stumbles on Betty, depending on how you look at it. And, and I think it would have been very easy to just have them be friends, but they do take it to that next level because of reality that they become lovers or girlfriends. Hard to say like what, what their relationship ends up being, but it's very intimate and it, it kind of like the beginning is even intimate of, you know, they, they meet each other and read us naked. Like, (laughs) well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right from the beginning, beginning, there's Mm -hmm. an intimacy that like you can't Mm -hmm. really describe and you're like, oh, they're really good friends. And it's like, no, (laughs) no, so I just I don't know. I feel like it's it's something very interesting to think about of like it could have been a platonic thing. But I'm glad that it wasn't. I don't know. It's I have I right. have complicated feelings about it, right? <laughs> right. No, and and then it depends too on how you want to look at. I mean, if you want to go with the school of thought that this is all of these characters, the female character, like you know, not there, mm-hmm. there are not they're not separate uh, characters. They're different aspects of Diane's personality. Camilla. Yeah. And if they're, if it's that, you know, if you're looking at it that way, then there really was no relationship. And right. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just different sides of herself that she's trying to um, sort of grapple with and, you know, with her identity and all of that. But if you want to look at it as her Hollywood dream, because how she wishes everything went the idealized way, then that's yeah. what that would be as well because the relationship between them, you know? Right, yeah. So that would have been what she wanted. Uh, well, let me ask you too, because it's something that just right. occurred to me of, is there also an aspect that Deanne, or Diane wanted to like become Camilla in a sense? I don't know. Right. There's something, right. uh, I don't know, consuming about like their love scene. and. Right. Right, which would be then if you look interpreting as an, another part of her personality that she right. wishes she could, yes, have been that actress. And the one, you know, he does address the fact of, you know, uh, that the Hollywood casting couch and how, like, of course, it's implying that these, you know, oh, Camilla and, the, and, and Camilla Rhodes, which is very confusing, the other woman named Camilla that actually gets the role in the movie you know, there's that other woman, Camilla Rose. Right. And yeah. 
that they slept, they were the ones that slept their way to getting the roles. And that's how Diane is rationalizing all of this with her subconscious and, and trying to come to terms with it, why she never got the role because she didn't do that. And that's what, right. you know, and that that is the case, that that is what was expected. And those are the people that made it, you know, Lynch's commentary on that um, side of Hollywood, you know. Yeah. Not holding back any punches. That Not man. holding back his <laughs> feelings <laughs> about, about the, yeah, the Hollywood machine. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and also the fact that, you know, it's, it's 2003 and, you know, really calling out Hollywood in a way that I don't think was so, um, accepted back in 2003, or maybe was just starting to be accepted. And, you know, compared to now where it's like, I feel like Hollywood is trying to be more transparent and like trying to change whether or not they are is a whole other discussion. But yeah, I mean, I'm kind of groundbreaking in in that sense of like, hey, yeah. look at all this terrible stuff in Hollywood right. <laughs> that goes on all the that time. That goes on all the time. And how it, yeah, and, and how he had empathy for how it destroyed a lot of people. And, you yeah. know. Um, he, you know, he definitely is, is trying to make a statement on that. Yeah. How how so many people come out here with the big dreams and they're all Mm -hmm. from small towns and (laughs) they just get eaten alive. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) It's not pretty. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) For many. Exactly. Um, you know. And he, and he, and it makes him sad. And that's the whole thing, you know, he, and even he, he was so, um, just humble and, you know, when Naomi would be complimenting him and thanking him for pretty much, you know, saving her career. And, uh, you know, he's, he understands, I think that's so many, it makes him sad that he, you know, he has, yeah commented on that whole thing about it doesn't matter how much talent you have or you know in this business really I mean it's important of course but it doesn't matter it's not the thing that's going to make it for you that's going to open doors for you necessarily just because you're talented which is sad right yeah and you know a lot of it is and is fate he says it's fate it's luck it's timing um, and other things, other back doors, he calls the casting couch a back door into Hollywood, you know? Right. Um, and that's why when they go around Winky's diner and they, they, he puts, makes, you know, sure, sure that he gets a shot of the back door back there. And there's all this symbolism of this is the back door to Hollywood, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, success and yeah, that's pretty powerful stuff, you know, that he, he yeah. decided he wanted to and how much he, he made a point of, you know, shining a light on that. Yeah. That. No, for sure. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, you got to respect somebody who says, this is my art and this is how I'm going to make it. And this is what I'm trying to say. And now I'm giving it to you and now you can also enjoy this 
art with me, you know, and maybe enjoy isn't the right word, but something in that vein of like, you get to also be a part of this. Cause like you said, it's an experience from start to finish. It does not stop. It doesn't stop. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, you know, that's in the end, I think that's what, you know, all you, I mean, is it's like all you can ask for when watching a movie, um, you know, is that it can transport you? That's what he always wants to do. He said it, and I feel that way as a filmmaker too. Is the privilege of taking people and transporting them into another world that you've created, yeah. and tell them the story. Um, and you know, and if you can keep people there for whatever two two and a half hours or however long it right. might be <laughs> in this world you've created. And then have them leave thinking and talking about it, you know, for a long time afterwards, then you've more than done your job. As a oh, member, my gosh. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I'd <Right>? say so. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, that feels like a very <clears throat> clear stopping point because I know we are we're getting we're just past that hour mark and I'm having such a good time but that feels so clean and I'd like to leave it there and so I want to give you the opportunity obviously I'm so excited to watch your movie but tell us where to find it tell us where to find you you know are you doing something next what's what's up with you all of those good things well thanks yeah of course Um, (laughs) I would love to so you can definitely, I mean, definitely find Fear Frequency. Uh, if you just do, a, if you want, just do a search, where can I watch Fear Frequency movie? All the platforms will come up. Or you can just go to Amazon, Amazon Prime Video, and find find the film there. It, we're also on YouTube right now, um, Google Play. So there's several platforms, you know, to watch the film. And also I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, um, social media, for sure. Just um, Fear Frequent with Fear Frequency Film and Fear Frequency Movie. Um, I'm sorry, and Russo Films and on Twitter. Um, yeah, definitely. Amazing. I'm out there. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> Well, I just want to say I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And this has been such a lovely time. And I just cannot thank you enough, 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 enough. Um, So you're welcome back anytime, obviously. Um, I've had such a great time. And just thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me, Becky. I loved it. I had so much fun as well. Appreciate it. Good. I'm glad. (laughs) Definitely. Another huge thank you to Laura Russo for coming on the show and talking about one of her favorite films, Mulholland Drive. Now, of course, as uh, Laura had mentioned on the show, her newest film, Fear Frequency, is live and available to be streamed on Amazon and other services. So obviously make sure that you go and check that out. I have seen the movie. It is eerie and scary a little bit and thrillery and overall wonderful. 
very good, very good content to be watching. And especially knowing the content of how it was created and also now knowing Laura. I mean, just a fun time. And so I hope that, you know, this interview also gives you that same feeling when you go watch her film, because I enjoyed it immensely. So again, a huge thank you to Laura. Now, obviously, if you liked this episode, we are nearing the end of season four. Um, And if you have not listened to the other seasons, then you have a lot of film content to catch up on. So it won't feel like as such a long time before the next season starts. So congratulations to you. Um, But for the rest of us who have already listened to all of the episodes in the summer session, uh, there's a couple options. Of course, Uh, number one, make sure that you're following us on Instagram at scopophilia underscore podcast. Of course, that is the main hub where I update everything and let you guys know what is going on. Uh, The guest of the week, the film of the week, so and so forth and any news updates or technical issues. Uh, Additionally, we do have a TikTok page at Scopophilia, the podcast. And as I've mentioned on here before, the TikTok is a little bit more of a silly view of me uh, (laughs) doing silly things and uh, talking about how much I love the movie Scream. So if you're into that, feel free to give us a follow there as well. More content is coming. And lastly, of course, we do have merchandise that you can buy from the show which always, of course, uh, supports and helps us out here. We have hats, we have shirts, and we have tote bags. Uh, They all include our logo. Uh, That way, when you're out in public, somebody can say, what is that? And you can say, oh, it's this really great podcast that I listen to. And um, you should totally listen to it, too. Do you like movies? And they'll be like, yeah, of course I love movies. And you can say, oh, my God, she talks about movies like the whole time. It's so much fun. Just like that. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously, of course, since you are, you know, out and about and uh, on the Internet already, you might as well rate, review and subscribe to the show. It always helps us out a lot. And uh, of course, I love hearing from you guys. So that's always, you know, one of the best parts. As always, I'm your host, Becky Teller, leading the millennial movie movement here on Scopophilia. And I'll see you all next Friday. Bye.